Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. We're starting in a new series this evening in a little prophet called Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. That's on page 801 in the Black Bibles. If you've got one of the blue larger print, it's in, on page 953. Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to read just the first five verses. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yeah, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Please take up your Bibles again. And turn back to Malachi. As I said earlier, we're starting this new series in this book, and it's a wonderful book. Um, now, I don't know what you already know uh, about Malachi, but as we, as we can clearly see in our Bibles, it's the last of the 12 uh, so-called minor prophets. What that means is that this book, alongside some of the, the history books, it, it sits in our Old Testament as, as God's final word uh, to his people before John the Baptist begins his ministry some 400 years later. It's, it's the final preparation before God uh, comes in person. And it's a book that on first reading might feel a bit strange. Uh, it talks of, of Jacob and Esau that we had in this evening's reading. We'll have priests and sacrifices, tithes, even leaping calves. You have to wait to see what's going on there. But, but actually, as we get into it, we'll see that the world of Malachi and our world are actually quite so different. Their temptations are our temptations. Their frustrations are our frustrations. And obviously, most importantly, their God is our God's. Because actually, in terms of redemptive history, there are some striking similarities uh, about them and us. You know, Malachi seems to be uh, written, um, he wrote this book once Israel had returned back from exile in, in Persia. Now, the return from exile was one of the great events talked about in some of the major prophets. So in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they, they speak of the return in kind of cosmic terms. The, the world will be made new. God's king in the, the line of David will rule forever. God's people will be under a new covenant. They're great promises of God. And yet for Israel in Malachi's day, they, they, weren't, they weren't yet experiencing them all. Yes, they were back in the land. Yes, the temple had been rebuilt. But they were, they were still under the rule of the Persians. 
Sin still plagued God's people. Enemies still stalked their borders. They had wonderful promises, and yet the reality of life jarred. They knew God said he would do great things, but it just felt like they're experiencing a a dissonance, a, a harmony that didn't match the tune. Life wasn't matching what they hoped for. And here in 21st century Scotland, we, we live in something similar. Christ has come, we know. He's won the victory. He's died and risen. We see uh, clearly all that God has done and is doing. We are in those last days. We know exile is over. We're in the new covenant. God's, uh, David's son really does rule on the throne. And yet we experience day by day that all of God's promises have not yet come to full fruition, have they? The end of death. The end of sin, they've been promised and yet we're still plagued by it. Tears still roll down cheeks. New gravestones are put up. Arguments are fired around the dinner table. God's people are still laughed at and mocked for their faith. There's that clash in our lives. Clash between what we know to be true. Christ is victorious. His tomb is empty. He reigns on high and yet we can't always see it. Perhaps you're particularly feeling that this evening. Perhaps you sit on the edge of your bed each morning wondering when Christ is actually going to deal with the problems that stare you in the face. For the people of Israel in Malachi's day, this, this feeling of dissonance actually impacted their lives for the worse, as we'll see. It led to a, a deeply problematic slide into half-hearted religion for them. Uh, we'll see they were half-hearted in their sacrifices and their teaching. They were, they were unfaithful in their marriages and in their giving. Again, perhaps not so far from 21st century Western church. And so this book that we're going to get stuck into, it's, it's a call to return. It's a call for God's covenant people to return to faithfulness to that covenant. Even with all that's going on around them, it's a call to return to true worship, to look as God's people really should look. I suppose it's, it's a call really for something we all long for in our lives, for, for integrity, Living as we hope to live. And as the weeks go by, we'll see Malachi does this especially by turning us more and more to look at the day of the Lord. To the great and wonderful day when God comes. He fixes our eyes on Christ, his first coming and then on to his second. And so this, this short book, it's a call to be faithful as we wait. It's kind of the, the, the title I've given this series, Faithful as We Wait. Faithful to God as we wait for that day to come. And this evening, God has got a surprising start for us. He doesn't start with, with sin or with our half-heartedness like he does in lots of the other prophets. He starts with something that's more fundamental, more glorious. And it's found in these first five verses now, these, these five verses, as we get in, stuck into them, they follow a structure that we're going to find six times in the book. There are six of these kind of disputes between God and his people. And in each dispute, actually, there's, there's four bits. It follows a very similar structure as we go through. God says something to his people or of his people. They, they respond, often with a question of disbelief. And then God answers them. And then he applies it. And we see it clearly in our passage tonight. God says something, I have loved you. They respond, well, how have you loved us? And then God answers it, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And he goes on and then he applies it, verse 5. You shall uh, see and you shall say. 
And it's a structure that we see that allows Malachi to really get under the skin of what's going on for Israel. This question and response means that God's people can't miss the issues that are at stake. So where does God start? What is his first word to his struggling, wandering, half-hearted people? Well, surprisingly, it's not our need, our need for faithfulness to him. Instead, it's a word about his own faithfulness to us. God's essential message is this, loved, loved. God's essential message, loved. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. In the midst of feeling, things are kind of out of whack. God speaks this extraordinary word of comfort to them. I have loved you. That's the essential message God's people need to hear. That's the place we need to start, knowing we are loved. And this love, it's a, it's a total love. I have loved you. Now, saying I have loved you, we may think that refers to something in the past. You know, Israel, I did love you once, but now I don't. But that's not what it means. It's, it's I have loved you, meaning I've totally loved you. I've always fully loved you. My love is complete. It's total. It's from start to finish. I loved you in the beginning. I love you now, and I'm going to love you in the future. Nothing is lacking from my love. I have loved you. It's total love. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, a love that never wavers, never lacks, never weakens. Perhaps a, a mother's devotion to her newborn baby is a, is a glimmer uh, of, of seeing this kind of love. You know, even for the fourth time that night, she, she gently picks up the crying child to comfort her, a total love. And it's also an unconditional love. Just notice who God goes back to in the end of verse two. He goes to Jacob and Esau. And the thing about Jacob was this, he was chosen as the object of God's love, but he was chosen before he was even born. You know, we're told about God's choice when he was even in the womb. God just loved him. He decided to love him, and so there's, there's no reason for it apart from his own will. And that means it's unconditional. It's not based on what Israel did or would do. You know, Paul quotes this bit of Malachi in Romans, and he's clear. God's decision to lay his love on his people is not because of works, he says. It starts with God's. It comes from him. It finishes with him. It can't be changed. It can't be downgraded. His love can't be lost when things go badly. No, God's people, God's people, that is Israel in the Old Testament and all those in Christ in the New Testament, whether Jew or Gentile, being part of God's people, it's the safest place to be. The church of Christ is is forever loved. God's never going to dwindle in his love for his church. He's never going to swap it for another group or religion. He won't say, actually, actually, I now love everyone who's followed Muhammad or, or, or those who are just trying to be good. No, he says, I have loved you. This is his essential message, loved. This is what the church needs to know most of all. As a, as a church, we can so easily become proud, can't we? We can so easily think we've made it. We, we're successful because of us. We're loved, actually, because we're great. You know, we're sound in doctrine, so God loves us. We, we sing well, so God loves us. We're trying to do a good thing, so God loves us. But, but no, I have loved you. It starts with him. He reached down to us. He gathered us. We're no more special than any other group. 
Christian church is not some super group. No, as, as Paul puts it, God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. So there's no place for pride. There's also no place for despair. We, we despair again when we think it's all down to us. If we, if we actually picked apart church life and saw our deep sins lurking under the smiling surface, sure despair would creep in. You know, as we saw the, the disunity, the grumbling, the selfishness, the lust, the laziness. But God's love doesn't follow us. It precedes us. God's love is bigger than our sin. He sent his son knowing our sin. Jesus went to that cross deeply aware of, of who he was about to die for. So we don't need to despair because it's not dependent on us. If you're, if you're part of Christ's church here today, if you by faith are resting in what Jesus has done for you, listen up. Do you know you are loved? Do you know that God says, I have loved you. I've loved you. You're welcomed by God. You're received and accepted. You're treasured and cared for. You're wanted and appreciated. He delights over you with singing. Oh, Church of Christ, we are loved. And this allows us to look at our day-to-day hardships differently. It allows us to experience the, the dissonance from a different perspective. Because often what we do is, is read what we think God's attitude to us is from, from what's going on in our lives. Well, life's bad, so he must hate me. Or life's good, I must be in his good books. But that's doing things backwards. It's like a, a child thinking his dad doesn't love him because his dad said no to giving him sweets today. But his dad's love is much bigger than that, isn't it? Actually, what he's experiencing is his dad's love. And with God, we need to see the same. We must start with what God says, not with our experiences. God's love, as the the writer Ed Welch puts it, is more sophisticated than we know. We, We can't read it off what's going on in our lives. We need to instead hear it from his lips. We need to let what God says then in turn impact how we view our experience, not the other way around. So even, even if everything in our lives turns upside down, even if the struggles press in in a way that we could never imagine, whether individually, you know, our health takes a turn, our, our family is stretched to its limits, jobs are hard to come by. Or perhaps corporately, we get, we get a hammering in the, church, in the press as a church or, or a serious bereavement. You know, God's love hasn't changed. It's total. It's unconditional. I've loved you. It's God's essential message, loved. But you might feel, well, that's easy to say. But like Israel, a question quickly comes to your lips. Well, how have you loved us? It's like they're saying, well, you say you've loved us, but, but have you seen our lives? It's actually hard right now. Have you, have you seen the lives of those who've rejected you? They seem to be doing fine. In, in what way have you actually loved us? Under the surface, I think that they're disappointed with God. Perhaps that's you. They, they, you know, they, they think he should have done more. God doesn't seem to get it right. He doesn't actually care. And as we grumble with God, we, we start to show a lack of trust. You say you love us, but really, have you loved us? Well, if that was God's essential message, loved, here is God's surprising proof. 
It's judgment. It's God's surprising proof, judgment. Let's have a look at God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered and we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, then they may, sorry, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? It's judgment. But not on Israel, but on on Esau and his people, the nation called Edom. How have you loved us, Israel asks. And God doesn't list all the wonderful things he's done for Israel. No, he walks them by the hand to the nearby nation of Edom and says, look at my judgment on them. That's how you know I love you. It's a shock, isn't it? So why, why is this the answer God gives us? Well, it's for two reasons. Judgment. Firstly, judgment is a display of God's loving mercy. And secondly, it's a display of God's loving justice. Let's think about that first. It's a display of God's loving mercy. Now, Esau and his people, they were always deserving of God's judgment. As it says in verse 4, they will be called the wicked country. And they were wicked right from the beginning. Esau had consistently despised, if you know the stories from Genesis, what was called his birthright. That is the the favor from God that should have been his as the elder son. But he even sold it for a meal. God's blessing for a quick meal is utter rejection of God's. And then his people after him were no better and their most recent horrors had been their utter scorn of Israel when they went into exile. The Psalms and uh, the other prophets tell of how, how Edom had just mocked Israel. They'd called actually for it to be utterly destroyed. They'd rejoiced as they'd seen it ravaged by the Babylonians and, uh, and perhaps they'd even sought to make financial gain out of the disaster. It's an utter contempt for God's people. You know, on Israel's darkest day, there was no sympathy, no brotherly affection, just hatred. God's judgment on Edom, it's utterly deserving. His anger and his hatred, it's not unfair, but it's exactly right, it's justice. But deserving, deserving God's rightful anger wasn't just true for Esau and Edom. It was also true for Jacob and Israel. Now Jacob, he'd been a man, he, he deceived and he tricked, he lied and he cheated. And his people... We know they often turn to idolatry, they worship false gods, they even offer child sacrifices. And we, as we get into the rest of the book of Malachi, we're going to see sin was still pervasive through the people. If Eden was deserving of judgment, well, so is Israel. Sin, it wasn't just over there, it's, it's here too. We know that's true as we sit here this evening, isn't it? It's easy to, to point the finger at the world out there. As we look at our own hearts, our own relationships, we know sin is right in here too. And so God says, do you want to know my love? Well, have a look at what's happening to them. Because as you see that, you'll see my mercy upon you. You know, as you watch Edom's downfall, you'll see exactly what should have happened to you. And so you'll know the extraordinary extent of my mercy. Look at their desolate land. See their collapsed houses, their their ruined strongholds, stones lying on the, the parched ground. 
Step through the weeds where there should have been crops. And as you do, you'll know a a different banner must be aloft over your heads. A banner of forgiveness. Forgiven. You know, it's like sitting in a, a floating lifeboat, safe, warm, Watching the the ship you were once in sink to the murky depths, taking everything with it, never to be seen again. And it's only as you you see that disappearing shadow, as the the noise of the splashing and gurgling subsides, it's only then do you know how wonderful your lifeboat is. Edom, it's a a nation we, we know virtually nothing about, apart from what the Bible tells us. Historians think they're probably finally wiped out when the Arabs crossed into the area in about 300 BC. They had fallen rightly under God's just judgment. Like many nations before them, their, their sin was a stench before God and he responded. It, it wasn't unfair to hate Eden. It was actually unfair to love Jacob. And it, that's what he did. Israel was alive. Israel was back after exile. Israel was rebuilding. Israel was never called the the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. She was God's treasured possession, the country God loves. Edom, it's a reminder that God's wrath is real, that God's wrath awaits all those who sin. There will be a day when God punishes all the sin in this world. And so it's also a reminder that forgiveness is real. You know, as the new creation, as eternal life awaits God's people, all those in Christ, Jew and Gentile, trusting in him. So we know, we know it's all through mercy. It's through love. The church, we should be gone, facing rightful justice, if we received what we deserved. Edom has gone. It should be us, but it isn't. It isn't. That's God's surprising proof of his love. It's judgment. As Peter Adam puts it, if we do not know the wrath of God, we will not know the love of God. And we know we see this truth most clearly at the cross. With Eden, we saw uh, those who deserved it. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the wrath of God on, on the one who didn't deserve it. If we want to know we're loved, look at what Christ bore so that we don't have to. As Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we get a glimpse into the agony of what he faced on facing the wrath of God. Separation from all that is good and wonderful and loving. And yet we won't face that. That judgment isn't like an axe waiting above us. It has swung, it has swung upon another. That judgment upon Christ, it is a display of God's loving mercy to us. Now, this isn't a view of God's love we often like to hear, in a sense, is it? We, we want to be told how wonderful we are. We want, we want to be affirmed and complimented. We want to be shown how much we do deserve. But God knows us better than that. And so do we. We know deep down our lives aren't worthy of accolade. But that doesn't stop God's love. It isn't a love that gets steered away by our failings or cancelled by God finding out what we're really like. It's steadfast because it's not down to us. He chose us. If you're struggling with knowing deep down that you are truly loved by God himself, look to the cross and see what it could have been like. See what you could have faced in the future 
And so know that the banner over you must be different. Even in life's difficulties, it must be forgiveness. And so love itself. God's surprising proof, judgment. It's a display of God's loving mercy. And secondly, more briefly, it's also a display of God's loving justice. Edom is not just a a random other nation. You know, God didn't pick a a tribe that Israel had never met nor had nothing to do with to show his mercy. No, he picked Edom, the ancient enemy of God's people. And so judgment over Edom is, is justice for all that they have done against Israel. It's actually loving justice. It's justice against their enemies. God's love isn't just what he hasn't done, executing justice on us. It's also what he has done. This judgment on Eden points to the glorious truth that God doesn't sweep the pain of his people that they've suffered under the carpet. As Israel looked again on that desolate nation, they could see their enemies slowly being got rid of and peace once again coming to them. Those who persecuted them, hated them, mocked them, they were, they were slowly being dealt with. You know, although Persia was still there, God was giving them a glimpse. It won't always be this way, my people. Peace, true and lasting peace is coming. He doesn't ignore persecution. God doesn't make light of his people being treated badly. And in our context, like losing their jobs for his sake across the world, even losing their lives. No, he will bring justice. His love is good. No wonder, in verse 5, the people will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, we do see glimpses of this in our world. You know, at the political level, when dictators are toppled, to the individual level, you know, when a Christian holds fast against the whispering temptations of Satan, there, in those moments, we see, we see God's love through the defeat of his enemies. But of course, it's in crystal clear, high definition when we look at Jesus. He came sweeping away the evil forces in our world, you know, ridding people of Satan's power, triumphing, triumphing over them uh, both in his life. You know, we saw him casting out demons of everyone he met, unashamedly condemning the leaders of those who had oppressed God's people. And then powerfully in his death, death and resurrection as he rid all evil of its power in his defeat of sin and death. If you want to see God's judgment of his enemies... We'll look once again at the cross and the empty tomb. And we know it points us towards the future judgment and destruction of of all our enemies. When Christ will return, when he'll deal with things completely. God's love, it's shown in how he treats our enemies. And we get this kind of love. You know, we see it in films all the time. Protective fathers who who are going to fight for justice against anyone who messes with their kids. You know, kind of Russell Crowe in Gladiator, Liam Neeson in Taken, anyone who mistreats my child will face my wrath. Now, God isn't some vigilante. He also, or he, he acts always in justice. But it's, always, it's a love-fueled justice for his children. You know, as we, as we walk the golden streets of the new creation, we will know God's love because there won't be any fear No enemies stalking us. No death awaiting us. No whispering devil accusing us. Peace. It's God's surprising proof. Judgment. It's a display of his loving justice. Now I know 
all this talk of judgment isn't easy, knowing that one day some people, even those close to us, will face the just and fearful wrath of God. It's not something we often want to be reminded of, is it? But God does want us to spend a moment remembering it this evening. He wants us to see that he is a God of justice. Why? So that we might know his love. Knowing there's a hell begins to help us see the depths of his love to us. We see his mercy. We see his justice. How can we, sinners that we are, be with him forever? Because he loves us. Because he chose us. Because he said, you know, William Allen, for no good that is in you, I'm going to unite you to my son Jesus. I'm going to shower you with my blessing and bring you to an eternal life, all because I want to. I'm going to judge your enemies. I'm going to bring you to a place of peace. I am going to have mercy on you. And so as we close, may this move us forward to a, to a greater place of trust with our heavenly Father. May we be able to see, say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. You know, if, if you struggle this evening to believe that essential message, loved Well, may this surprising proof be of great help because it's all based in him, not in us. So take a step forward this evening. Speak to him as your father. Lift up some of life's difficulties to him, knowing he actually cares for you. He's not out to beat you with a stick and frown over you. He's deliberately not judged you with his curse, but rescued you from it. How much more does he want to bless you? And as you see the success of those who hate God and you begin to grumble, may the the reality of God's judgment just help you to cling to Jesus. God's favor on you is greater than you can imagine. He holds a different banner over you. Or perhaps as you struggle with another bout of bad health, you want to turn your back on God. Well, remember, Christ has judged your enemies even death, and one day there will be no more sickness or crying or pain. So take a step towards your Father, even in words of frustration. Why? Because you are loved. If you're not a Christian here this evening, and this talk of judgment and love has perhaps woken something deep within you, I'd love to chat with you more. But but Christian, hear these words of God. I have loved you. It's the glorious gospel, isn't it, that we know to be true in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.